Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori, hei hōtaka e pānaki te putaio, te taio me te kaupapa o te ora. You're Without Changing World on RNZ National. And if you'd like to find out in advance what's coming up on the show, then head to our webpage and subscribe to our weekly email alert, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Now on Our Changing World, light and the brain. A new research area that combines light and genetics is just the ticket for better understanding how brain cells communicate. Alison is off to the University of Auckland to meet postdoctoral researcher Peter Freestone, who hopes that his work with the brain may eventually help people suffering from the movement disorder Parkinson's disease. I study part of the brain called the basal ganglia. It's a, a network that is involved in uh, a lot of functions, um, walking, learning and memory and other sort of reward-related behaviours too, and addiction, etc., I'm studying a very small part of that even, just one connection within this network, and um, I'm looking at compounds called endocannabinoids. Uh, these are cannabis-like substances, and they're produced um, naturally within the brain. And I'm looking to see how they control the flow of information between two cell types. So just remind me, how does our brain work? How does it send information around? Generally, neuron A communicates with uh, neuron B, so brain cell A and B, they communicate with an electrical signal that um, goes down neuron A and, and it reaches a gap called a synapse. And at that gap, a chemical neurotransmitter is released that might be uh, dopamine or glutamate or GABA. And that drifts across the synapse and it activates cell B. And that will either cause cell B to um, increase in activity and, and uh, send its own little signal down or maybe go a little quieter. Endocannabinoids work in the opposite direction cell B communicates back with cell A and says, I heard your signal and now I'm going to turn you off or, or maybe I'll, I'll, I'll turn your signal up a little bit more. So that's how endocannabinoids work. They're sort of actually known as retrograde because they're going the opposite direction from the normal flow, which is anterograde. What are you specifically looking at? My cell B is the cells that produce dopamine. We're looking at how they produce uh, endocannabinoid and it is a particular one called nada, which sort of sounds like means nothing, but actually it's a special endocannabinoid because it actually includes a bit of dopamine in its structure. Dopamine is a, a neurotransmitter, and the key thing for dopamine is that in Parkinson's disease, the cells that produce dopamine uh, degenerate. They selectively, relatively selectively degenerate, so you end up with fewer cells producing dopamine. So that's why I'm interested in these dopamine cells. I'm interested to see what signals they get in to see if we can somehow maybe rescue or to help the cells that survive, see if I can get them to produce or to release more dopamine in the disease state. That's sort of what I'm looking at is see if these endocannabinoids can help sort of through that 
that conversation to see if they can help increase the amount of dopamine released, basically. How do you go about studying these single cells? Yeah, so we use a microscope, obviously, to really be able to see the cells. And the cells that we're looking at are in a brain slice. This is an animal that has um, kindly donated its brain to us freshly, and we um, prepare um, slices of that brain containing the cells and, and parts of the network that we're interested in. So we put this under the microscope and we can um, see individual cells, we can recognise them, we can see where they are within the network. And then we can use um, a special technique called electrophysiology where we can actually record the electrical activity of a, of a single brain cell. And that's sort of using um, fairly fine, sensitive um, manipulators, we can actually bring a, a tiny electrode right down onto the surface of the cell and be able to record its electrical activity. It's, it's um, signals that it's sending out to the rest of the brain. So the important thing at the moment is you're understanding how this works in healthy cells before you then go and look at Parkinson's brains and look at the cells within those brains? Yeah, absolutely. So this, this very early stage of the research at the moment, I mean, uh, we've got a, a fairly good idea of the mechanism, but we're trying to understand the, the broader effects of that mechanism in the brain um, function, but we'll f first of all study that in, in healthy animals or healthy brain slices. But then to uh, sort of explore the clinical relevance of it, uh, would then look to go to a disease model. So these are models of Parkinson's disease that we can produce in the laboratory in, um, in rodents, and we can study this mechanism in that context and then see if we can see if we can manipulate it to try and recover, basically recover some of the function that's lost in the disease model. So you're also using an, another new technique, optogenetics. Can you tell me about that? Yes, we use uh, optogenetics, which is sort of the latest uh, technique to sort of sweep the world of neuroscience research. Um, so opto referring to light. And basically we're able to control particular cells using light, and that's um, something that hasn't been possible before. So that's the light side of things. The genetic side of things is really where the specificity comes from. A, a problem that has uh, plagued sort of neuroscience research, trying to study a very highly interconnected network, is that we didn't have the tools to be able to dissect out uh, individual components. And optogenetics allows us to do that. Other approaches have been electrical stimulation that's been uh, widely used even in the uh, clinic. It's actually uh, used as well on the likes of deep brain stimulation. But these techniques are not specific. They excite a region of the brain and that will spread out to any cell, the ones that you want, the ones that you don't want, and various effects. The other approach, of course, is um, pharmacology, so, so drugs, um, administering a drug. But that is a significantly slower response. You have a drug and you might get a response, you know, half an hour, an hour later. In the field of neuroscience um, research in the lab, we want to be able to um, apply an intervention and then see the response. And that's the best way in which we can study how this network works. So optogenetics allows us to do it with um, extremely fast timescale. You know, light is just on and off instantly, essentially and then with a much better resolution so we can study um, a particular type of cell and even further we can actually um, excite or stimulate just a single cell. So optogenics is using light to control brain cells. 
So how do you make individual cells respond to light? Because I imagine they wouldn't normally respond to light. Yeah, so with the exception of eyes, of course, which respond to light, our brain doesn't respond to light. And what they've done there, they've taken from, from nature, from biology. So there's these um, single-cell organisms that are able to photosynthesize, so they like light, and they've developed a, essentially a simple eye, in which um, case they're able to be attracted to the light so they can synthesize and grow. What scientists have done was identify a particular protein, a particular um, uh, property of these cells which made them light sensitive. And they've taken that protein and through the genetic toolbox, the genetic sort of manipulation, they're able to introduce that into um, other cells. So we can introduce, introduce it to the brain cells of a rat. Um, or a mouse or, or whatever animal we happen to be using. So we can make brain cells light-sensitive. And so if you have a group of brain cells and you turn your light on, only the ones that have got this protein in will react to the light? Yeah, exactly. So you could have two cells side by side and you could shine a light at both of them. And it's a particular colour light. They like um, blue light and, and is the um, typical colour used. One cell with the protein will respond and the one beside it will be none the wiser that it's been st stimulated. So what does that allow you to do? So it allows us to really study or tease apart that network in greater detail, whereas before you were using perhaps electrical stimulation, stimulation of uh, an area of the brain and you'd get a response and you'd postulate what was causing that and you'd draw a diagram as to what you thought the network was. Um, now, with Dr. Genetics, we have the much better resolution. We can say that, well, it's this cell type that's resulting in this effect and this behaviour. It's uh, a different cell type causes some other effect, but they could be within the same region or very similar regions. Could optogenetics have any clinical applications? Potentially it can. So obviously it's a, a fantastic research tool and it's going to really drive advances in neuroscience research, our understanding of the, um, of the brain. But clinically it potentially could. I mean, it's still probably early days of uh, clinical applications of optogenetics, but I personally see no reason why, why one day we won't see it. Light used to control a, or um, help in a particular disease state. I mean, if you look at Parkinson's disease, so a, a treatment option for Parkinson's is uh, deep brain stimulation. So this is where we use uh, a long electrode. Uh, it's positioned down into a part of the brain, typically the subthalamic nucleus, and its uh, electrical pulses sent out 130 hertz at X number of volts. And that's, um, that can bring incredible relief for uh, a sufferer of Parkinson's disease can uh, bring the uh, tremor that's associated with the disease completely under control. And I've seen that for my own eyes, and it's, it's, it's an incredible technique. But there's no reason why that uh, we couldn't actually replace that electrode with a fibre optic that can actually um, transmit light down into the brain. Size-wise, they're about the same, so it's not a, a huge difference there. In fact, there's even some evidence that says that the light stimulation will require less power and therefore you would need to change your batteries less on your deep brain stimulator. But you'd have to introduce the light-sensitive protein as well? Yeah, so that's probably the, the biggest hurdle is how to get that uh, light-sensitive protein into the, the cells of interest in the, in the subflamic nucleus. But the way that we do that in the lab and the way that would possibly be used in the clinical setting 
um, could be a, a, a virus, and we can use these viruses in a very safe and harmless way. It sort of sounds very alarming, but it's, it's not the case. And we can actually um, introduce that protein using, using a virus, and that could be the approach used clinically. And there is um, some precedence for that because um, other clinical studies have used uh, viruses to introduce genetic material to other parts of the brain. So it's not a completely hairbrained idea, but, I mean, it's certainly not, it's not taking place now, but, I mean, you know, watch the space sort of thing. That was Peter Freestone, a postdoctoral researcher in the Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences at the University of Auckland. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Kakite Anu. Botox Cosmetic, Adobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.